So, okay, very good. Uh, we're going to pick it up. Uh, we're in the context of discussing evidences of uh, salvation. And uh, I want to talk about the place of water baptism a little bit here tonight. And uh, note uh, on, the, on page 215 there, under that, uh, water baptism, an initial act of obedience that testifies of saving faith. And under that, Christ said to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are not saved by following, but a true faith follows. One of the first evidences that a person has a sincere faith is that they get baptized as Christ commanded. This is one of the first evidences that they have a faith that follows. I mean, how do you know if you have a faith that follows? Well, maybe you want to do what Christ says. I mean, that would be one of the first evidences. The evidence that one has made a true a disciple is shown in baptism. Baptism does not save, but it is an evidence that one has been saved. I love this quote by Charles Ryrie, a little further down there. Though an important Christian ordinance, baptism is not part of the gospel. To include it in the gospel is to add a work to the grace of God. A hearty amen to that. Unquestionably, baptism was a clear proof in New Testament times of conversion. To refuse to be baptized raised a legitimate doubt as to the sincerity of the profession. So in that sense, I think it was a lordship issue. If you're not willing to follow Christ at, at the first command, uh, are you a true follower even? Uh, raise a serious questions about it. And he's right there, raised a legitimate doubt as to the sincerity. Okay, let's go to the next page, page uh, 216. After that uh, first uh, sentence there, uh, the Philippian jailer asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The answer came back, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The text then goes on to say, They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And then immediately, he and all his family were baptized, having believed in God with all his household. So that's the pattern. You believe and you get baptized. Evidence that you have really believed. Um, Again, we're not saved by baptism, but if we really believe, the expectation in the New Testament is we'll get baptized. Uh, middle of the page here. Many refer to baptism as a sacrament, meaning that this ritual itself is the means by which a person receives the saving grace of God. This is a false doctrine, and the reason it is so serious is because to trust in baptism even a little bit for salvation means that you're not trusting in Christ alone. Saving faith trusts in Christ 100% alone. For salvation, and does not rely on any works that we do, including baptism. So note uh, Romans 4, 4 and 5 here. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So I mean, if, if, if you've got works in the equation, it's not grace. Grace is 100% God's doing. And so he says, verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes. So works and believing are in distinction. Uh, he, he who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now I say, there are a few verses in the New Testament that if taken in isolation are confusing concerning the issue of baptism. I will give you that. Uh, that is why we study the Bible inductively. We want to take the whole thing into consideration, considering the whole counsel of God. If you have three or four verses that seem to be out of sync with the rest of the Bible, then maybe you should back up and say, perhaps I'm missing something. So, yeah, we want to, what is the whole council teaching? A solid principle of proper interpretation is that a clear text always takes precedence over an unclear text. That's a good 
principle. Uh, We have about 150 clear verses in the New Testament that teach we are saved on the basis of faith alone. In contrast to a few uh, hard-to-understand ones that on the surface might seem to tie water baptism into it. Uh, Years ago, I wrote a series of articles in the newspaper exposing the false doctrine of baptismal regeneration. It caused quite a stir among those who teach it. I got together with one of them at his insistence. He said I was a deceiver. He wanted to come to our church and debate me in front of our church. Since I don't give false teachers a platform, I rejected that out of hand. However, at the end of the day, in fact, he wouldn't leave my office. I had to leave my office. (laughs) I kind of left him sitting there for a while, hoped he came out eventually, which he did, but... Uh, However, at the end of the day, we did agree on one point. We had one point of agreement. And the one uh, one point we agreed on is one of us is wrong. One of us is wrong. We agreed on that. Uh, We both agreed it can't be both ways. You can't be saved by faith alone and faith plus baptism. Uh, One of those propositions has to be wrong. We agreed on that. Either we're saved by faith alone or we're saved by faith plus baptism. I'm absolutely dogmatic and emphatic that the Bible teaches salvation by faith alone. I I mean, this is a hill to die on for me and and you as well. (laughs) In fact, if you say otherwise, I'm really going to uh, have a problem with that profession of faith. Uh, Read the gospel of John, the gospel of belief. We don't even have New Testament church baptism in the book. Yes, John the Baptist is there, but that's before the church. Uh, John wrote this book well into the church age, about 90 A.D. So, so we might believe and have eternal life. If baptism is involved in saving a person, John the Apostle left out a key part of the salvation message in a book that has its entire purpose to show us how to get saved. That's impossible for me to believe, that, that John left out a key essential element as far as how we have eternal life. There's no way uh, I'm going to believe that. And it's interesting, John did not include New Testament church baptism. Okay, uh, top of page uh, 217. In Acts 22, 16, we have a very interesting verse. I wish we could spend more time. I'm going to just touch on a few things here. Uh, but in Acts twenty-two sixteen, 16, Ananias begins by saying, of course, this is in relationship to Paul's conversion. And uh, the Lord shared the gospel with Paul himself, Galatians chapter 1. But then he, te- he says, go into town and uh, they will tell you what you need to do. Well, shows up, Ananias begins by saying, and now why are you waiting? What are you sitting around waiting for? Uh, this is like a little swift kick that Paul should immediately do this. Uh, that is that he should immediately get baptized. After you believe, it is the next step. There is to be no delay. If you're a believer and have not been baptized, Ananias would say to you, and now why are you waiting? What are you waiting for? I mean, crisis made it clear. Get baptized. You shouldn't have to sit there and discuss it for very long. Uh, That's a great question. You shouldn't be waiting. You should go and get baptized. Why are you waiting? If you're a professing believer, haven't been baptized as a believer, let me put it to you. Why are you waiting? What are you waiting for? Uh, More clear instruction? I mean, it's there. Uh, Come down to the bottom of the page under the uh, bold uh, there. Uh, When you put all the scriptures together in an inductive way, the only sense washed can be understood in connection with baptism is symbolically. Water baptism does symbolically picture sins being washed away, as seen, for example, in 1 Peter 3.21. This is why the New Testament emphasizes baptism immediately following salvation. At the moment one believes in Christ, they are completely cleansed of all sin. If they wait 10 years to get baptized, that communicates the wrong message. 
that is like saying, although I have been saved for years, yet I haven't been cleansed until now. Uh, the appropriate time to declare cleansing is right when it happens. It's an immediate reality. Baptism is saying, I have believed and therefore I'm cleansed of all sin right now. This is the consistent pattern in the New Testament. People believed and then they were immediately baptized. So baptism does portray cleansing. But as we see in a multitude of clear passages, salvation cleansing is on the basis of faith alone. In reality, it's the blood of Jesus alone that cleanses from all sin. It is faith alone that applies it to the heart. Okay, next page. Uh, putting it all together, top of page 218. If Paul received the gospel from Christ alone, and he did, and if we are saved by believing the gospel, and we are, and the gospel is distinct, uh, <clears throat> distinct from baptism, which it is, then it is very clear that we are saved by believing the gospel and not by the ritual of water baptism. However, having believed the gospel, we then immediately are commanded to be baptized as a testimony of our faith and of having been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Uh, let's go down uh, to the meaning of baptized baptism there. And uh, note at the bottom of the page, the literal meaning of baptism, baptized, means to dip under. That's the primary meaning, uh, to immerse. Uh, without argument, that's the primary meaning. The secondary meaning is to dip into die uh, with the metaphorical idea, uh, the figurative idea of identification. So the literal meaning is immerse, often used with a sense of identification. An actual translation would then read as follows uh, in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, immersing them, uh, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, come down to uh, the middle of the page there, uh, that little line, the essential meaning of baptism in the New Testament is identification. Uh, this is without exception the idea behind it. Keeping this straight will protect us from false doctrine. Okay, let's go, to, uh, let's go down the road here to page uh, 222. And uh, two important points. Number one, baptism is distinct from the gospel message, which I have belabored. Uh, two uh, verses in combination bring this out. Uh, Paul says Christ didn't send him to, to uh, baptize, but to preach the gospel, making a distinction between the two. And then in Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Number two, baptism without exception in the New Testament follows believing the gospel. Now, I can hear it now. Somebody's saying, yeah, there is, a, there is an exception. Uh, baptism without exception in the New Testament follows believing the gospel. What about the thief on the cross, right? I'm talking about uh, the New Testament era of the church, the church age. Uh, you understand the, the cross was pre-church. So, yeah, uh, I think there's a, there's a principle there, and I will go, come to that. But as far as baptism... We don't have an example in the New Testament where you have a believer who's unbaptized. You say, well, well what about the thief on the cross? Yeah, he doesn't count. So, yeah. Let's talk about believer's baptism. Uh, note uh, the pattern. It's always uh, you believe and then you're baptized. Uh, baptism and active obedience. Uh, Acts 10. Can anyone forbid water? This is Peter saying this in, in reference to these Gentiles who have just uh, come to believe and receive the Holy Spirit. Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? It was, it was very clear where we go. Uh, these people have believed they should be baptized. Can anybody, can any of you fellow Jews, you have a problem with this? 
And so uh, the expected answer is uh, no. And uh, verse 48, and he commanded them to be baptized. Uh, See, it it was not a suggestion, it was a command. And it was an immediate command. Uh, baptismal regeneration makes uh, water a co-savior. Definition, and this is from Got Questions, uh, baptismal regeneration is the belief that baptism is necessary for salvation, or more precisely, that regeneration does not occur until a person is water baptized. So new life, the regeneration, uh, the giving of new life happens uh, in the water, happens in relationship to the ritual. I say, no, 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 it doesn't. It happens in conjunction with faith and faith alone. Top of page 223, Wikipedia says, Baptismal regeneration is the name given to doctrines held by major Christian denominations, which maintain that salvation is intimately linked to the act of baptism, and that salvation is impossible apart from it. I think that's pretty uh, accurate. Uh, John Phillips, No doctrine has been more instrumental in persuading lost people that they are really saved than the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. That is a powerful statement, if it's true. I think it probably is true. Uh, No false doctrine has been more instrumental in giving people false assurance than baptismal regeneration. Uh, Here, Rome has taken the lead, but many Protestant churches have followed that lead using covenant theology as their justification for doing so. I have many problems with covenant theology, and this is is certainly one of them, especially when you tie in infant baptism that brings that baby into the new under the new covenant. Uh, that's, that's got major theological problems. Uh, middle of the page, uh, Daniel Lane. If salvation is by faith alone, it seems to be double-speak to say that a sacrament, a physical ritual, is part of the process. Yeah. Uh, these tensions within the Reformed doctrine of infant baptism result from the fact that Reformed theologians view baptism as a covenant seal. Uh, That is a major, major problem. I believe wherever infant baptism is found, it invariably is linked with heresy. Uh, It's a very, very serious issue. Uh, Again, I'm an Anabaptist through and through. Uh, bottom of the page, <clears throat> five airtight texts refuting baptismal regeneration. Here's my bottom line. I've already mentioned 1 Corinthians 1.17, where Paul makes a clear distinction between the gospel and baptism. Number two, the gospel of John. Uh, no church baptism is found in the book. Uh, Ninety-eight times the word believe. He wrote that we might believe, and believing we might have life. The whole emphasis is believing. Uh, number three, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. The gospel, according to Paul, is according to what? The Old Testament scriptures. Okay, we've got the gospel. It's in the Old Testament scriptures. Where do you find baptism in the Old Testament scriptures? Uh, you don't, <laughs> the answer is you don't. And circumcision was not baptism last I knew. And, and what about baby girls? Uh, poor souls. I guess they're just out. Anyway. Uh, then Luke twenty three forty two, the thief on the cross, you know, he is uh, an example of faith alone. I mean, he couldn't do anything. There was nothing happening there. The top of page 224, uh, God shows no partiality, is totally consistent in how he saves people. Uh, the thief on the cross is the rule, not the exception. Uh, all who are ever saved are saved on the basis of God's grace through faith. I mean, the thief on the cross was saved that way, and God shows no partiality. Anybody he saves, he saves in exactly the same way. Uh, Romans 4, uh, Abraham is the premier example of saving faith. 
The testimony of Scripture is that Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Often circumcision, I've heard that somewhere, often circumcision is thought to correspond to baptism in that both are outward signs of being in covenant relationship with God. However, Paul emphasized that righteousness was accounted to Abraham on the basis of faith alone before he was circumcised. He makes that a major point in the chapter. Paul emphasizes that to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. So what can wash away my sin? Well, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus alone is Savior. Believe it. Okay, uh, we're talking about evidences of salvation. I kind of took a little, uh, you know, uh, side path there on baptism. But let me come back to uh, point number 10, a willingness to openly confess Christ as personal Lord and Savior. Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, I'll confess before my Father. Whoever denies me, I will deny before my Father. Uh, page 225. What comes out of the mouth uh, glorifies the Lord. Uh, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I mean, that's a, a principle stated uh, regularly. Uh, and Jesus certainly stated it there, as we see uh, in Matthew 12. Number 12, a desire to do what is right and not sin. A hatred, a hatred for sin. You know, if you're a, if you're a Christian, uh, you're, a, you're a different person than you were before. Uh, yes, you still have the flesh, but now you have a brand new nature that's wed to the Holy Spirit. And you know what? The Holy Spirit always wants to do what's right. The new nature always wants to do what's right. And uh, so, you know, even with Paul in Romans 7, the, the things that I don't want to do, uh, you know, I, I, I hate it. I hate when I don't do what I should do. And we have that struggle. That, that's uh, normal as far as the Christian life. Um, you know, I mean, if you can thoroughly enjoy sin and there's no conviction of it... Uh, Probably not a believer. Uh, well, you're good for maybe just a slight little bit of time, but I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit's going to catch up with you in a hurry. Number 13, a spiritual struggle or battle. Uh, as Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There is a struggle. I think struggle is evidence of life. Uh, we want to do what Christ wants us to do. Uh, page uh, 226, conviction of sin. Say, say, what about David? David, David sinned greatly as a, as a believer. Yeah, and what was his experience after he did so? Miserable, miserable, miserable. Uh, Psalm 32, Psalm 51. Miserable experience in his sin. You say, well, I think he just skated along. No, he didn't. It was, it was absolute misery until the Lord brought him to repentance. 15, the believer will not habitually practice sin as do unbelievers. Three major texts in the New Testament do not be deceived. Uh, believers do not live like unbelievers as a pattern of life. First uh, Corinthians chapter six, come across the page, Ephesians chapter five, and First John chapter three. Three great texts emphasizing that uh, the believer will not habitually practice sin as do unbelievers. Uh, discipline for sin, number 16. Uh, God disciplines all of his children. Uh, let's come across to page uh, 228. And... Uh, Second paragraph there, as God's children, we can be disobedient, but in disobedience, we can be sure that chastening will follow. For flagrant disobedience, we can expect severe discipline. Uh, Paul told the Corinthian church that because of their mistreatment of one another, many were weak and sick among you, many sleep. And then Paul went on to say, for if we would judge ourselves, I mean, if we deal with our own sin, uh, we would not be judged, we would not be disciplined. Uh, but when we are judged... Uh, we are chastened, 
by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. This is what sets us apart from the world. Uh, As God's children, we experience discipline. Unbelievers, they don't. They face ultimate judgment. But, uh, you know, it's a different situation. They're not a part of the family of God. If we won't deal with our sin and get right, then God will judge us with discipline. And such discipline may result in sickness or death. That's what Paul's point is to the Corinthians. Uh, And, of course, we want to be very careful because not all sickness or death uh, is a matter of discipline. Uh, We, too, live in frail bodies that are breaking down, and things happen. Sometimes we don't know why. Uh, Page 229. Uh, Note under the the bold, uh, there's uh, 3 John 2, uh, underneath that, 1 John uh, 5.16 says, There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. So there's a sin unto death. I mean, if a believer persists in his sin and won't uh, even listen to the discipline of God, the disciplining hand of God, there comes a point when uh, God uh, may take that person home. Uh, Skip that next paragraph. Sometimes a professing Christian is living in flagrant sin and consequences start to accrue. Then people ask for prayer for that person. They ask for God's blessing. In such cases, I often think to myself, We ought to be praying for repentance, and if they won't repent, there is nothing else to pray for. Until they repent, there is no point to pray blessings upon them. Such a person is beyond prayer in the sense of having God's disciplinary action removed. They will continue on the path towards death until and unless they repent. Okay, spiritual growth, uh, guess what? Guess what living things do? They grow, right? Certainly if they're healthy. I, and uh, so the expectation is if you have life, you're going to grow. Number 18, spiritual discernment. Uh, third paragraph there. In 1 Corinthians 2, 9, Paul quotes, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But then he goes on to say, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. Um, and then the next, uh, the next paragraph, in contrast, Paul says the natural man, the unsaved person without the Spirit, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. They don't have the Spirit. Uh, they lack discernment. Uh, they lack insight. Now, you know, we've talked about this. There is the, uh, uh, the enlightenment of conviction where God shows you the truth and you're responsible. What are you going to do with it? But in and of ourselves, uh, the unsaved person, he, he does not know anything. He cannot know anything apart from the Spirit. But we can. Number 19, uh, worship God in truth. I always find it interesting in John, in that gospel belief, in chapter 4, in the evangelistic context, Jesus told the Samaritan woman that the Father is looking for worshipers and that those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And I believe the first act of uh, true worship is saving faith. Uh, Fear of God, uh, bottom of the page here. Fear of God in the Bible consistently has the idea of proper reverence for God. Peter, in addressing the Gentiles in Acts 10, said, top of the page, uh, Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. There's a great principle right there. There's no partiality with God. I mean, he doesn't say, well, I am dealing with this category different in terms of saving faith than I am with this one. I don't think there's any difference when it comes to uh, the nature of a saving faith. And then he says, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Isn't that interesting? Did Peter have the gospel right here? I think he did. 
fear is a reverence for God that's really a part of a saving faith response. And then it works its way out and works righteousness, uh, is accepted by him. So this is a kind of uh, saving faith that uh, is the right kind of faith. Uh, down just above number 21 there, the Bible draws a clear line of distinction between God's people who fear him and the world of unbelief that does not. I mean, Romans 3, uh, there is no fear of God before their eyes. But that's not true for us. We do reverence God. Um, you know, even Jonah in his rebellion said, I fear God. I mean, there's still, even in our disobedience, there's still a fear of God down deep. A true saving faith holds God in reverence. Uh, number 21, persecution. Persecution. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In John 15, Jesus taught us uh, that the world hated him before it hated us. And because he has chosen us, because he has chosen us, therefore the world hates you. John 15. Jesus didn't mince words. Clearly the world will hate those that belong to him simply because they hate Christ. And if you are one that he has chosen, you can expect that the world is not going to love you and appreciate you and say, you're wonderful. And boy, things are really kind of getting hot out here to where, you know, if you're not going to endorse the world's morality, uh, you know, pressure. Uh, you're a hater, you know, and they're coming after us. Anyway, page uh, 232. A desire to serve God. Uh, second line there. Uh, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is at work in us to where we desire to serve him. He is at work in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. I mean, God is at work in us to that end. And he has begun a good work and you will perform it. I mean, God's, God's at work in our, in our lives. Uh, number 23, the, the, looking for the coming of Christ. Go to the bottom line of that first paragraph there. In Hebrews 9.28, it says, To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. The expectation is true believers are looking for Christ. I mean, this was the experience of the Thessalonians. They were saved to, to wait uh, for Jesus from heaven. Uh, persevere, bottom of the page. Uh, Paul says the true believers have been reconciled to God and will be presented holy and blameless to him. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. The expectation is that true believers will persevere in their faith. A lot of places we could go there. The end of Hebrews chapter 10 as well. Uh, page uh, 233, middle of the page, assurance uh, from the Holy Spirit in accordance with the word. Uh, note there in Romans 8.16, uh, Paul says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But the Spirit does not work in isolation. As the Spirit of truth, he ministers truth to the believer's heart consistent with the Word of God. Uh, and I want to touch on uh, 1 John 5.13 here, uh, which emphasizes knowing that we have eternal life. Uh, 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know you have eternal life. Writes it to, towards the end of the book, not the beginning, towards the end of the book, of the letter. It is certainly true that as believers we can know we have eternal life, but it's important to note that you may know, in 1 John 5.13, is based on these things I have written. Meaning the know of 5.13 is based on all the previous knows in the letter. 
You know, it's always good to think in context, always good to read what comes before. I'm a huge believer in reading everything in context. Uh, for example, 1 John 2, 3, he writes, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. One can't claim to know of 5.13 if they can't claim to know of 2.3. Can, can they? I'm just asking. I don't think so. Uh, in 3.14, John says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Again, one cannot claim the know of 5.13 if the know of 3.14 is not true. How about building on what the book says and then say, Oh, here at the end, you say, I, I wrote all these things that you might know you have eternal life. Instead of just you know ferreting that one verse out and say, Well, I know I have eternal life because 1 John 5.13... and disregarding the whole previous rest of the letter. 1 John presents a series of knowing tests by which one can know they have eternal life. And based on this, John states in 1 John 5.13 that he wrote these things to those who believe that they may know they have eternal life. Top of page 234. The Bible says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. I mean, Paul told this to the Corinthians. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Here's the real test. Jesus Christ is in you. Unless, unless of course, you are disqualified. That's a good, good thing, a good test. Uh, is Jesus Christ represented in my life? Is he on display? Uh, how do you see Jesus Christ in a person's life? How about the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long you know, all these things, all the fruit of the Spirit. Evidences of a converted heart, J.C. Ryle, sense of sin, deep hatred of it, faith in Christ, love to him, delight in holiness, longing after more of it, love for God's people, distaste for the things of the world. These are the signs and evidences that always accompany conversion. Uh, spurious faith. Uh, let's jump down to the bottom of the page here, that last paragraph. It is true that God uh, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, but this truth must be personally applied, which is where uh, the word of reconciliation comes in. We plead with people to respond in saving faith and thus be reconciled to God. As Paul warned, it is possible to receive the grace of God in vain, which means in a bogus manner. Paul addressed the church at Corinth as saints. I mean, that's how the book begins. But at the same time, he challenged them to examine themselves as to whether you are in the faith. Same book. Uh, Christ died for the ungodly, but we are justified on the basis of faith alone. And, but it must be the right kind of faith, the kind of faith like Abraham had, which is a life-changing kind of faith. So let's go across the page here now to 235, and let's consider a pretty long section here on uh, key points on the right kind of faith. This is kind of like a summary catch-all here at the end of the book. So we're going to cover about, I don't know how many points, 14, I'm not sure how many it is, but quite a few points here. Uh, and again, some of this is review, so I'm not going to look at it uh, in depth here with you. But uh, uh, number one, Abraham, the foundational example of saving faith in the Bible. In all the Bible, Abraham is the leading example of a saving faith. And uh, A, Christ built on the example of Abraham. Uh, Abraham was justified by faith alone, but it was a living faith that bore fruit in his life as emphasized by Christ. Right? John 8, 39. Uh, they answered him and said, Abraham is our father. Um, Abraham's our father. We're related to Abraham. And uh, Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works. You would do the works of Abraham. He's saying, you don't have the right kind of fruit. It doesn't show in your life. Yeah, you have the profession that you're Abraham's children, but spiritually you're not. 
Uh, Romans 4.12, uh, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith. Walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Uh, down at the bottom of the page, Paul built on the example of Abraham. Again, we've talked about this uh, quite a bit. Let's go to, to page 237. The writer of Hebrews built on the example of Abraham. Uh, D, uh, James built on the example of Abraham. Everybody's going back to Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. Uh, page 238. Uh, note there towards the middle of the page. Uh, rightly dividing the word. Justification is by faith alone. Faith produces works. And works evidence faith. There's really what I'm saying in a nutshell. And I think that's rightly dividing the word. Uh, all of those are, are true. Justification is by faith alone. Faith produces works and works evidence faith. Uh, okay, we're continuing on with uh, key points on the, on the right kind of faith. Uh, we've talked about Habakkuk. Uh, so Habakkuk 2.4 is a key text. I, I referenced that earlier. Just a review there. The Gospel of John, number three. Uh, and so uh, let's go to uh, page uh, 240. And uh, there we have Romans. Uh, again, <laughs> the whole book of Romans. Let's just throw the whole book at you, shall we? Uh, I'm looking forward to teaching through Romans. It's after I get done with Matthew, that's where I'm going. I've, I've been looking forward to that for a while here. And then again, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul uh, summarizes the gospel most uh, succinctly uh, in, in the New Testament. There, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, a key, a key text. Uh, let's go to page two, uh, 242. And there we see uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, a, a favorite gospel text for me. Uh, note under the reference there, Paul here is clearly dealing with essential gospel truth, and his emphasis here is on the person of Christ. Uh, the issue is one of belief. And so that, this is a key text for me as far as, hey, the gospel not only is about the finished work of Christ, it's also about the person of Christ. And you can't, you can't uh, divide that. They, they go together. Uh, in fact, uh, skip that next line there. Paul describes it as the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I love that description. The light of the gospel. What, what good news? The glory of Christ. Uh, what is the glory of Christ? Well, he is the very image of God. He is God. And, and this is what we have come to see. God has shown the light in our hearts, similar to when he said, let there be light in Genesis. Okay, come across the page, uh, page 243. Uh, Colin Cruz, great quote here. In the gospel, the lordship of Christ is proclaimed and people are called to give their allegiance to him. But the one to whom they are thus called to submit is also called the crucified one the one who died for them. These two basic elements of the gospel need to be held together, for if they are not, the gospel itself is distorted. Uh, he summarized where I'm at in my thinking very clearly. Okay, uh, well, I guess the clock says uh, we should probably pray and uh, have a little break here, and we'll come back and finish out the book, okay? Lord, again, we thank you for the fellowship of the faith that we enjoy as believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, we celebrate uh, the salvation that we have for, in your grace, bringing us to a saving faith. And then, Lord, working in our lives. Uh, Lord, saving faith is just the beginning. 
And just as sure as we have a, a living faith, it will then work its way out in our lives, as we see, have seen here. So, Lord, uh, bless the fellowship now and the, the food. Thank you for the hands that prepared it, for the ladies that work in the kitchen there. And uh, so bless our fellowship now, too. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. See you back at 7.30, Lord willing. How you doing?
Okay, I guess it's the appointed hour, so uh, they'll filter in as we get started here. Let me, uh, I think I've got a couple of slides here, right? Let's see. There. Okay, this is John Bunyan. Uh, it is possible to learn all about the mysteries of the Bible and never be affected by it in one's soul. Great knowledge is not enough. Well, that is certainly true. I mean, the religious leaders were very knowledgeable. Uh, those Jewish leaders had lots of Bible knowledge. I think I got one more here. Let's see. Yes. I love this quote. If you haven't come to God on his terms, you haven't come to God. You came to yourself. Yeah, John uh, Johnson. Junior. So if you haven't come to God on his terms, you haven't come to God, you came to yourself. Yeah, indeed, that's true. Okay, uh, let's pick it up. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's pick it up, uh, page 244. And we are continuing on with key points uh, on the right kind of faith. And uh, Galatians 1, 6, and 9, a key, a key text here. Uh, you know, he says there, um, I'm, I'm marveling that you are so soon turning away from from him who called you into the grace of Christ, which is a, a way of saying the gospel. And then as you come down, uh, skip down uh, to the end of that reference, above all, the gospel of Christ is a gospel of grace. Uh, in the book of Galatians, Paul stresses this point with great force, starting with the opening verses. This is a hill to die on. The gospel of grace cannot be compromised. Uh, across the page, uh, C.I. Schofield, the test of the gospel is grace. Uh, grace is the test. Is it according to grace or not? Um, grace is Christ who gave himself for our sins. A scene. I should have put Galatians 1.4. I just said verse 4 as if you should all know what book and chapter I'm talking about. Uh, grace is the reality that Christ died for us. As seen in Galatians 2.21. Grace is 100% Christ's doing. The gospel is the grace of Christ. That's it. It is purely unmerited favor of Christ in what he has done to rescue, his, uh, rescue people. We don't contribute to his grace, cross work. We don't share in his glory. Grace is all Christ and the glory is all his. Believers have simply responded to this grace uh, called by faith. Faith is non-meritorious and is the result of God working in our hearts. God didn't call us uh, on the basis of a legalistic system. He called us in the grace of Christ. He called us on the basis of what Christ has done. He called us on the basis of the unmerited favor of Christ. So the true gospel is 100% a gospel of grace. I think I said that about seven different ways. Uh, okay. Uh, note, uh, top of page 246, uh, you know, he's concerned about them perverting uh, the gospel. To pervert means to distort something by changing it. It is the idea of reversing something or turning it around to where it is the opposite of what it was before. It's twisting to where it changes it. And just a little bit of works will twist grace. Uh, note that these false teachers did not, did not outrightly deny the gospel of Christ. They just wanted to tweak it, just tweak it a little. And they wanted to add a little something to, which, uh, to it, which in effect changed it. In adding to Christ, they perverted the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ. Grace ceases to be grace when anything is added to it. Grace is all God's doing, or it is nothing. Grace allows absolutely no contribution on the part of anyone other than God. So grace is 100% a God thing, and that's why the glory 
is all his. Uh, skip down the middle of the page here. Paul uses a, an editorial we, referring to the apostles themselves. Paul says, even if we apostles, or an angel from heaven preaches a gospel contrary to the gospel of grace that had been preached, let him be accursed. Uh, well, that is strong language. It's hypothetical language because it is not possible that the true apostles or an angel of God from heaven could do such a thing. But if it were possible, Paul says, let him be accursed. I like to quote from Tozer, if an angel should appear on my windowsill, I would tell him to wait a minute while I got my Bible to check out what he says. Uh, is this truly according to the word of God? Uh, Robert Gramacki, in the first century, many added circumcision and obedience to the Mosaic law to faith in Christ as conditions for entrance into heaven. In this day, there have been many other substitutions, for example, baptism, confirmation, but the principle has remained the same. They are trying to be saved by faith and works. Paul attacked this doctrine tenaciously. Legalism can never provide justification or sanctification. The principles of grace must always govern salvation and service. Let's come across the page uh, to page 247. Another key text is 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. There Paul says, This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Uh, note under there, and by the way, he says he became a pattern to those who are going to believe. Uh, the proverbial formula of a faithful saying is found five times in the pastoral epistles. It is thought that in the early church, this saying was used to emphasize key important truths. The reference here is evidently to the statement Christ made regarding his coming to seek and to save the lost. Let's go to the next page, middle of the page, 248. Uh, the quote from William McDonald's, Note that the title chief of sinners is not given to a man steeped in idolatry or immorality, but rather to a deeply religious man, one who had been brought up in an Orthodox Jewish home. His sin was doctrinal. He did not accept the word of God concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejection of the Son of God is the greatest of sins. Indeed, that is true. Bottom of the page, the pattern of Paul's conversion was definitely a lordship conversion. He definitely believed on Christ as Lord and Savior. As someone as well said, if you believe as Paul did, you will be saved as Paul was. Paul is the pattern for all those who are going to believe on Christ for everlasting life. Okay, let's come uh, to page 249. And another key text is 1 Timothy 2, uh, 1 through 7. And uh, here Paul says he is he's exhorting prayer, prayer for everybody, for, for all men. And, the, and then he goes on to say, uh, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Jump down towards the bottom of the page, the, the second to the last paragraph. Uh, prayer to this end is pleasing to God who wants to save people. He is God the Savior. And prayers uh, that are for a favorable evangelistic uh, context are pleasing to him. This is his great interest and should be ours as well. Okay, let's go to page uh, 250. Uh, down to the Thomas Constable quote, he says, There is nothing in this text or in any other that would limit the truly universal interpretation of all men. God wants everyone to experience eternal salvation. People perish because they do not hear the gospel or hearing it, they choose to reject it. God has given people freedom to choose to accept or reject the gospel. And then Moody uh, Bible Commentary, While the atoning death of Jesus is perversional, uh, provisional, provisional, potential, 
and sufficient to save every person. It is experiential, actual, and efficient only for believers. So you do have to receive. Uh, you have to receive Christ for who he is as Lord and Savior. Uh, across the page here, bottom of the page, 251, he paid the debt for all. Uh, this is proof that he desires all to be saved. Uh, I think that goes together. God's desire to save all, his provision for all to be saved. But the issue is you have to accept it. You have to respond. Uh, okay, top of page uh, 252, note the emphasis on all. Uh, towards the top of the page here, note the emphasis on all throughout this whole section. Pray for all. God desires all to be saved. Christ gave himself a ransom for all. Uh, tremendous emphasis on all. We are to pray for all because God desires all to be saved. Uh, God in Christ has made provision for all in the substitutionary death of Jesus. To summarize this passage, we might say the first priority of the church is to pray for all people because God desires all to be saved. We need to pray for them. Um, God desires them to be saved. Uh, Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith chapter. Uh, let's camp here for just a, a little bit here. Uh, note there, at the end of Hebrews 10, the writer wraps up the warning section in verses 38 and 39 by saying, The just shall live by faith, which is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4, as we have noted. And then he went on to say in 10.39 that we, the true believers, are not of those who draw back, apostatize to perdition, eternal destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. True believers will not apostatize. They may backslide, they may compromise, but they will not completely abandon the faith. A true saving faith perseveres. It endures. This is the test of genuineness. Uh, the nature of a saving faith that endures is then illustrated at length in Hebrews chapter 11. And we call it the Hall of Faith chapter, as it gives example after example of true God-honoring faith. There's a definite connection between the strong emphasis on the person and work of Christ in chapters 1 through 10, and then the faith chapter that builds on it in chapter 11. Uh, come across the page here to page uh, 253. As presented in Hebrews 11, uh, as seen in the lives of the Old Testament saints, real faith involves such characteristics as, number one, faith takes God at his word even when it doesn't see the promise <clears throat> being fulfilled in the present. So faith rests on the bare word of God. We see that illustrated uh, time and time again in this chapter. Number two, faith continues on and dies in faith, even if the promises haven't yet been fulfilled. And that was the case of all the patriarchs, these Old Testament saints. They didn't see the fulfillment of what God promised, and yet they persevered in faith. Number three, uh, faith believes that God will yet fulfill his promises, even if that involves them being fulfilled in the resurrection. Uh, you know, some things are unfulfilled in this life, in the here and now, but... There is a resurrection coming. There is going to be a day of fulfillment. Number four, faith has an eternal perspective that looks beyond this life. And then five, faith believes that the best is yet to be beyond this life. So kind of redundant there. At the end of Hebrews 11, the writer comes full circle to where he started in verse 2. After introducing the topic of faith, he said in verse 2, that by faith the elders obtained a good testimony. How did they do it? By faith, they obtained a good testimony. Then after giving the many examples in the chapter, his conclusion is this. All these, all the examples in the chapter, 
having obtained a good testimony through faith. Uh, So that's the key uh, point. These all had a good testimony of faith that showed they are approved as people of faith. They had the real deal. A good testimony of faith is a valid testimony. Uh, In this Hall of Faith chapter, we constantly note throughout the active nature of a true faith that is a good testimony. Note, a living faith is active by nature. I mean, that's the point of the chapter. Uh, Note here, by faith we understand. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Enoch pleased God. By faith, Noah prepared an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Sarah judged him faithful. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. By faith, Isaac blessed. By faith, Jacob worshipped. By faith, Joseph gave instructions. In every case, they had a faith that worked. They had a faith that demonstrated itself in one way or another all the way through. These had a good testimony of faith. Next page, page 54. By faith, Moses was hidden. By faith, Moses chose. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho were encircled. By faith, Rahab received the spies. And by faith, they lived in triumph or died faithful. All the way through the chapter. So genuine faith demonstrates itself in the life. That is the point of Hebrews chapter 11. Very similar to James chapter 2. That is why James says that faith without works is dead. A a dead faith is not a saving faith. In the Gospel of John, the word believe is always a verb. A living faith is lively and active by nature. Secondly, true faith continues until death and does not draw back to perdition, but rather believes to the saving of the soul, as he said almost as an introduction to the chapter at the end of chapter 10. And so Hebrews 11.13 says, These all died in faith, and again in 11.35, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And finally, 11.39, all these having obtained a good testimony through faith. Again, you don't have a formal definition in Hebrews chapter 11 of faith, but you have example after example of what real saving faith looks like. Okay, um, so uh, then... uh, Note, they all had an active faith that continued. And yet, note that while they all obtained a good testimony through faith, all had a faith that actively continued until death, yet none of them received the promise. Note in Hebrews 11.33, they did, they did obtain certain promises, but the point here is that they did not receive the promise. Okay, uh, let's go across the page, uh, 255, uh, to uh, 1 John. And we've spent some time in 1 John already. But just a few other points here. The Gospel of John was written with an evangelistic purpose so that people might believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and thereby have eternal life. I mean, that's why John wrote the Gospel of John. But then he followed up with another book called 1 John. And 1 John was written so believers might have assurance of eternal life. He wrote so we might have eternal life, and now he writes so we might know, so we might have assurance. Uh, John writes um, 1 John to clarify what the right kind of faith looks like. He uses the word no in one form or another 40 times. Fellowship is emphasized four times in chapter 1, but after that, the dominant emphasis in the book is on knowing. Uh, 1 John presents a series of tests that distinguish true faith 
from that which is bogus, by which one can know they have eternal life. <clears throat> the letter builds to the purpose statement of 1 John 5.13, where John says he wrote to believers that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, I have a series of 14 tests there, uh, a lot of overlapping here, but uh, note at the bottom of the page, of the series of tests brought out in 1 John, uh, three of them are most clear in drawing the line between who is a true believer and who is not. And uh, note at the top of the page, uh, 256, uh, the obedience test, uh, the righteousness test, and the love test. These are kind of the three key tests in the book. Uh, the obedience test, First uh, John 2, 3, and 4. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. What if you don't keep his commandments? Well, maybe you shouldn't claim to know. And, of course, he's not talking perfectly. None of us keep the, the commandments perfectly. But we desire to obey. I, that's the spirit of it. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He says, I know him. I have a relationship with the Lord. I know him. They're a professor. And does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. And John is the one who says that all liars will have their part in the lake of fire in Revelation 21.8. So here is the most basic test of genuine Christianity, of genuine faith. Uh, those that truly know Christ characteristically keep his commandments in recognition of his lordship. I think this is a strong lordship text. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. I mean, it's consistent with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, but he who does the will of my Father. And so forth. It's, it's not an out of place statement here. It's consistent uh, with the, the whole scripture. Uh, <clears throat> notice I say here, it doesn't say they always obey as they should, but the point is that the tenor of their lives is one of obedience. The issue is not perfection of one's life. As seen in 1 John 1, 9, I mean, he started out, if we confess our sins, I mean, we do sin. We do need to confess. So he's not talking perfection as you look at the whole book, uh, but it does alter the direction of one's life. And that, that's, a, that's a main point in 1 John. Uh, the righteousness test, 1 John 3, 7, and 8. Little children, let no one deceive you. There's that emphasis. Don't, don't, don't let anybody fool you because there's always these people come along and say, oh, oh it's not that way. Uh, you can live any way you want and be a Christian. Uh, don't let anyone deceive you. The practice tells. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And what kind of sinning pattern does the devil have? He has an unbroken pattern of rebellion and sin. That's the way of the devil and the way of the devil's children. It's an unbroken pattern of sin. Uh, that's not true for us. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might break that pattern. He might destroy the works of the devil. Uh, that pattern of unbroken sin in, in the life of God's people. Um, <clears throat> John Phillips says there, if we do not have a belief that behaves, we probably do not have a salvation that saves. Yeah. Okay. Um, the love test. Uh, cross the page 257, the love test. First John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave his commandment. So here we have a summary statement that in effect is a sort of creedal statement. John boils the, the core essence of Christianity down to this. At core, this is what God commands. Note that John states this is one commandment, although two principal things are in view. Uh, he states it in this way because the two are inseparable. Uh, where you have one, you have the other. 
Uh, it is a case of the two becoming one, so to speak. In other words, where you have true faith, there will be true love. And where brotherly Christian love is, there will be true faith. And that's what he says, First John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This is the evidence of truly being born of God. He who does not love does not know God. For, he is, for God is love. So here's the acid test of the love test. And then, uh, again, 1 John uh, 5.13, John's purpose statement. Under the text there, John's goal is that every true believer might have assurance of their salvation. There is a difference between security and assurance. The weakest believer has security in Christ, but may lack assurance. When it comes to assurance, there are two issues. Uh, First, there is false assurance. People such as false teachers in view in the book of 1 John claim to be Christian and avow that they are saved, but the problem is they consistently fail the test throughout the book. That's a problem. On the other hand, there is a God-given true assurance based on the criteria spelled out in the book of 1 John. It's possible to be weak in this area, and that is why John writes to strengthen the true believers. Bottom of the page, in the surrounding context... John ties believing with being born of God as seen in 5.1. This being born of God is really the key thrust of the entire book. Believing is conjoined with being born of God. However, this belief then does not stand in isolation. Top of page 258, it has ushered in the life of God. You truly believe you have come to receive the life of God. And the reality of being born of God is also explicitly tied to obedience and love as developed in the book. Out of being born again flows the practice of righteousness and agape love. So again, 1 John 5.13 does not stand alone. Uh, Skip that next paragraph. Believing cannot be severed from being born of God and the transformed life it ushers in. One must have the right kind of faith. It must be the, the right object, the Lord Jesus Christ. It must be from the heart. When that is in place, the fruit of obedience and love will follow, and so will the assurance that John affirms. Uh, Edmund Hebert says, The assurance John has in view is not the result of wishful thinking, but is firmly grounded in the varied evidences set forth in the epistle. Indeed it is. Uh, Towards the end here now, I emphasize uh, Lord and Savior is a package. And it is, consistently. It's a package. And I have lots of references uh, to show that. Uh, Come to page uh, 260, top of page uh, 260 there. Titus 2.13 says, Believers are looking for the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is who He is to us. He's our great God and our Savior. Uh, Peter consistently links God and Savior together in reference to to Jesus. In 2 Peter 1.1, he speaks of... Uh, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll have to know, wonder which member of the God is he talking about. Talking about. Uh, clearly, uh, Jesus, uh, our God and Savior. In 2 Peter 1.11, he speaks of the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, uh, it's Jesus. In 2 Peter 2.20, he speaks of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter 3.2, he speaks of the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. 2 Peter 3.18, he signs off by exhorting believers to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter was kind of, this was Peter's thing here, emphasizing Lord and Savior, God and Savior, together uh, in reference to Jesus Christ, repeatedly 
uh, all over the place, showing that they are uh, really um, Lord and Savior here uh, go together. Okay, finally, come, come. Uh, You know the truth, the knowledge of the truth. The truth demands a response. What are people going to do with this? Uh, Come is is the invitation of the Scriptures. And no one can do it for anyone else, right? I can't save people. I'm not the Savior. I'm one of the delivery boys. But, uh, you know, I give the message. We are, we are ministers of reconciliation, but, but nobody can do it for anybody else. Uh, we have to come ourselves. And, of course, nobody comes on their own, but as God is working, we have to respond. We have to come. Um, you go down. Let's jump across the page to... Uh, Middle of page 261. The last invitation in the Bible is found in, in Revelation uh, twenty two seventeen. The Spirit and the Bride say, what do we say? The Holy Spirit, working in conjunction with the church. The Spirit, doing that internal work of inviting. The church is doing the external invitation, uh, saying, come, as we give the gospel. The uh, Spirit and the Bride are saying, come, 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 come. Let him who hears say, come. The one, the one who, who responds, he should then take on the challenge to invite others. Come. Let him who thirsts, desires. Thirst is desire. Whoever thirsts, let him come. And then for emphasis, whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. There's an urgency throughout the New Testament to come in saving faith to Christ. Uh, okay, let's go to uh, the next page. Page 262. Last page. Uh, The whole of heaven sings, Worthy is the Lamb. I'm looking forward to being a part of the choir. Uh, We sing His praises because He has redeemed us by His blood. We sing His praises because He has made us kings and priests to our God. We sing His praises because we shall reign on the earth. We sing God's praises because He is worthy. Worthy is he who sits on the throne and the Lamb to receive all the honor, worship, and praise that heaven has to offer. Uh, Jump down to the Spurgeon quote. This is the sum. My brethren, preach Christ always and evermore. He is the whole gospel. His person, offices, and work must be our one great all-encompassing theme. The world needs to be taught of its Savior. Blessed is that ministry of which Christ is all. For the believer who is a new man in Christ, it's all about Jesus. Colossians 3.11 says, Christ is all and in all. The right kind of faith, it's all about Jesus. Let me uh, read some of these acknowledgments here at the end. Uh, You know, I've said this is my my great work as far as my life. There's one thing I want to leave behind, it's this. Uh, acknowledgements. First, I want to thank God for the privilege of studying and teaching His Word these many years and for grace piled upon grace. I thank God for Jesus, who is my all, as my Lord and Savior. Then I want to thank my dear wife, Janie, for supporting and encouraging me in the work through the years. What a blessing she has been. Uh, She is the one who dubbed the term the Lordless Gospel, uh, by the way, certainly in my life. I don't hear anybody else using it, so I think I'm going to coin it or, or, you know, whatever. Uh, I am so thankful for the blessing that is found in our children, Ellie, Austin, Karis, Nate, Charity, Levi, Faith, Isaiah, for their living faith. I'm thankful for each grandchild the Lord has given us and counted a privilege to pray for them day in and day out. Most of all, praying for their salvation and that they would live fruitful lives to the glory of God. I also would like to give thanks for my Christian parents, my steady Eddie dad, Marvin, 
plotted faithfully through life, taught me much in his latter years about contentment. My dear mother Eunice sowed the seeds of the scripture in me from my youth and prayed for me diligently. I'm also grateful for Laddie Lodel, who challenged my false profession of easy believism and called me to repentance. I remember him looking at me and saying, Are you married to him, Jesus? And then for Pastor Eddie Masters, faithfully preaching the word, Romans 6.23, which was like an arrow to my heart, it stuck. I'm thankful for many solid Bible teachers that God has used in my life to build me up in the faith, including my dear friend and mentor, Dr. John C. Whitcomb, who emphasized to me the self-authenticating nature and all-sufficiency of Scripture. I'm thankful for the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. John MacArthur, whom I've learned much about teaching verse by verse. The entire church is much indebted to him for his strong stand on the Lordship of Christ. And then I want to thank Albert Keller for encouraging me at great length to republish this work. I don't know how many years Albert worked on me, but it was quite a few, wasn't it, Albert? And then uh, and he said to me the other day, it's, it's a little bit longer than that first work. Yeah, yeah I, I think about 230 pages longer, but anyway. Uh, I would also like to thank uh, Jeff and Donna Marone, Jeff Woolen, for their involvement in proofreading the project. And finally, I want to thank the Southview Bible Church family for being a great blessing and a constant source of encouragement through the years, enabling me to study deeply and teach verse by verse through the entire Bible. To God be all glory forever and ever. Amen. With gratitude and humility, yours truly. And thanks for uh, blessing me and being here this week as I pretty much shared my heart. The, the heart of my study for 38 years. Uh, indeed, may it be to the glory of God. Lord, again, we thank you for uh, this time we've spent together. I trust it's uh, fruitful and profitable. Uh, may each one of us continue to examine the scriptures uh, as good Bereans and uh, evaluate everything through the grid of scripture. It really is all about uh, you, Lord, about the word of truth. So, Lord, again, may it bear fruit for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming out this week. Good to have you all here.